Hello and welcome to another episode of Into the Tech of It. I am your host, Jaime Cabrera, and today we will continue our conversation with Dr. Jacqueline Schneider. Dr. Schneider is a Hoover Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and her research focuses on the intersection of technology, national security, and political psychology with a special interest in cybersecurity, unmanned technologies, and Northeast Asia. Last episode, we discussed the different ways in which a cyber strategy comes together, and in this episode, we will continue this conversation and expand on how a private and public collaboration could look like, among other things. We will pick up right where we left off. concept of cyber weapons uh, because cyber weapons is not just an you know it's not just one definition there are like different ways of using cyber capabilities in order to you know reach your goal and can you talk a little bit about that please yeah and i try very much you'll you'll catch me now uh, but i try very much to never use the word cyber by itself so i generally use cyber as an adjective and then i say something Usually I'll say cyber operations, right? But the reason why I'm very careful about using cyber as an adjective is because cyber as a weapon is actually varied. Um, so you can have um, most cyber operations are generally what we would consider kind of cyber network exploitation or cyber spying, where you are accessing someone else's network or accessing someone else's data. And you're looking at that data, but you're not trying to destroy the data, manipulate the data, or create an effect from the data. You're just taking that information in order to make decisions in other ways, right? And, and that's most of what cyber, a lot of cyber criminal activity is like this too, right? I'm stealing your credit card information so I'm going to use it, but that's not an attack necessarily. But then there are um, cyber attacks, and sometimes those cyber attacks are creating um, virtual effects. So I'm destroying your data, I'm manipulating data, or in the case of ransomware, I'm not letting you access your data. Sometimes it's very simple, this thing called DDoS, where you're basically just overwhelming um, servers for a website so that, that website can't be used. And that's kind of a brute force cyber attack. And then you have things that are extremely sophisticated. Um, we call these APTs, advanced persistent threats. And that would be something like uh, Stuxnet, right? Where this is an exploit that has been created to affect a very specific vulnerability within an operating system to create a very targeted effect. And in that case, that created a physical effect. Um, but that's very rare to be able to create physical effects. And that, and then there's this other category, which is really kind of cyber-enabled information operations. And this is when you're using um, cyberspace and digital media to try and proliferate an information operation or an information campaign. So this could be um, disinformation about an election. This could be um, information about vaccines. Um, it could be a general influence operation where you're using um, cyber operations or cyber enabled in information operations to just try and um, create a general consensus around an idea. Mm -hmm. And so increasingly the line between like social media mm -hmm. and cyber operations is becoming blurred. 
And and it's good that you touch on the topic of disinformation, misinformation. Uh, in other episodes of this podcast, like we cover a little bit about misinformation, but never from like a, an attacker perspective. It's usually about you know the the, the, the misinformation, disinformation that users encounter on social media. And uh, we've in, in other episodes we've talked about the political use of this kind of like tactics, right? But um, how effective is it as you know for a state to use this tool? Uh, is, is there is there like something that we can see right now and be like oh okay well this is it's being consistently used there's an effect that we can see and how do you defend for it you know from a from a state perspective not as a user perspective yeah it's hard for states like the united states to defend against this right because mm -hmm. it brings up some very complicated discussions about free speech Um, and so free speech and liberty and then trying to figure out kind of how do we deal with disinformation. Uh, for a while, the, the way the social media companies were, were trying to solve this problem was focusing on kind of disinformation and specifically kind of foreign disinformation, right? And the U.S. too is focusing on foreign disinformation. So um, if you're only dealing with how Russia is manipulating information, that's a lot easier because we don't really care about Russian freedom of speech, right? You know, <laughs> this is not an American citizen problem. Um, and I think when you look at kind of the tactics they came up with after 2016, the United States government was very focused on this outward looking, how do we deal with threats like the Russian um, disinformation. And I think that if people are interested in disinformation, I highly recommend the work by Renee DeResta, the Stanford Internet Observatory. But she, she does some really great work comparing, for example, the Russian IRA, um, which was really building these very um, evocative memes and personas um, as their type of information operations versus the more traditional kind of Russian intelligence agency disinformation, which is more of a hack and reveal, like the Wikipedia revelations, um, not Wikipedia, the WikiLeaks revelations from the Democratic National um, Committee. Very different tactics. Um, and I think actually the, the IRA tactics were much more useful. Um, so, I mean, there's different tactics, you know, within these different organizations. The trouble for the United States has been after there's a seeming kind of success in 2018, the disinformation just continued. And what we realized is when we step back and look at it now, um, a lot of this disinformation is coming from within U.S. society. Um, and it's these kind of existing U.S. societal cleavages, which really brings up the giant question of, Okay, that's not a role for the DOD. We can't clearly say this is foreign. So then how does the U.S. deal with that? And that's a much bigger problem, um, which I don't I'm not sure the Russians like had this as an objective, but it's brilliant. Um, yeah. so, so is this a direct result of this, uh, you know, influence campaign that now it just like it took off, which to me sounds a successful campaign if like now you don't have to keep doing it, but it's it's causing the same effects that you were trying to to affect in, in the first place, right? I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is the this is like I always want I, I would love to have been like a fly on the wall in these <laughs> Russian IRA like conversations. I imagine it being like still a Silicon Valley office where like everyone's yes. on funky stools, you know, and they've got like <laughs> the whiteboard or the glass that they're writing on. And somebody's like, hey, let's just like see if we can get all these people to hate each other. I've got this cool <laughs> meme. I don't know. I mean, I can't even. This is kind of what it's like some some mix up of like Homeland and like that show about Silicon Valley. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. that's what I see is the Russian IRA. And I just wonder if they were like, well, let's just, 
like throw it on the wall and see what sticks. And then they walk away and they're like, damn, that was way more effective than we (laughs) thought it would be. That's kind of what I envision in my mind. I'm not sure if that's really. (laughs) I can, I can, no, I can definitely see that too. Uh, I think that's, I think that's the way it went. It's safe to say that they were like, they were way more creative in their tactics and it's hard to imagine that this was in a gray office with you know just people in suits just kind of like having to approve tons and tons of like papers at the same time it's hard to imagine that that's the way to happen i think we've just stumbled on a really great new netflix show and i think steve (laughs) corral should definitely be like the head russian uh ira guy he's coming up with all these great ideas yes definitely uh uh, just instead of the space force show they should like try to and and do this one instead (laughs) (laughs) maybe a hybrid (laughs) yeah maybe a hybrid i mean who knows we'll we'll see probably see it um well it's 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 interesting uh coming back to the conversation uh this idea of like misinformation just you know being uh being used and having a real effect in in other countries because the u.s is not the first target of this kind of campaigns uh the ukraine had this issue at the same time other places had this issue um but my question is uh, focusing a little bit on the united states since we have the separation of you know like anything outside of the u.s the military right anything inside dhs and 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 and, fbi um how do we prepare for this hybrid attacks where like some of it is coming from the inside, some of it is coming from the outside? Should there be a collaboration between uh, ent- government entities or are we just okay the way that we are right now? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, this is actually a very similar question that was asked in the 9-11 commission. And when we were thinking about how should the US government be organized to deal with terrorism, mm-hmm. um, which led to a series of legislative um I don't want to say experiments, but we've had last 20 years have been an experiment to see kind of how this works. I mean, DHS is a brand new agency for the United States. And I think the United States has seen some successes and some failures. Right. And when you are combining these these types of agencies, you run the risk of starting to militarize um, domestically. And. I personally would like that you know the Department of Defense to have a hard, hard and fast line where they're just not involved with these types of domestic issues. Um, I think that will help civil military um, relations. It keeps the U.S. more professional. It also, I mean, the U.S. Department of Defense is very, very busy, and I think this kind of that can be a distraction. Um, So, I mean, my hope is that the U.S. is able to kind of carve out niches. And what's the role then for the Department of Defense, right? When most of this stuff is happening inside the United States, oh, okay. Well, then the focus is is really. trying to make it more difficult for the IRA to access the internet to conduct these attacks, um, trying to, to take down the, the networks, the IPs that are propagating some of the disinformation that's coming from outside. It's not going to solve all disinformation, right? I mean, the reality is the U.S. is not going to solve its disinformation problems mm-hmm. until it solves its civil society problems, of right? One, um, one of the ways can, that, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say that uh, one of the ways that misinformation is, uh, you know, extremely successful is when you 
latch onto a pre-existing condition of society that that is a vulnerability, right? So racial tension in the U.S. Um, and 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 other like just right now COVID, right? Like you already have people who are anti-vaxxers in the United States, and it's not isolated. We've seen it in other countries as well. But it's it's a pre-existing condition of society, and then you exploit it. Uh, and and that was the kind of like the the golden ticket idea of the person who was like, well, it's just like I just do it there, right? Yeah. So I think in general, I mean, the best way for states' democracies, like there is a big question, you know, the U.S. has always in the last, since the U.S. has been writing cyber strategies in 2011, I think was the first one, they have always advocated for an open and free internet. And there's a giant question, right? Like if information's being weaponized against the United States, should the United States still be propagating this norm? And I think, yes, I think it is absolutely still worth it. It's just the U.S. needs to not just thinking about having an open and free internet, but also securing valid and genuine information. So it's not the wild, wild west, right? There are rules. And I think this is a really good opportunity for states like the United States to think about kind of what are the policies, the laws, the regulations that the United States can build so that we have kind of free, uh, we can secure information and allow people free speech without having free speech that um, that that is extremely harmful. And we've We've experimented here before. So I think there are things that you, the U.S. can do domestically. And then in general, the more investment in education um, and general kind of societal um, prosperity, I think mm-hmm. that can solve a lot of these issues. And as you said, you know, like it's uh, and, and the contrast would be China and Russia just advocating for having uh internet sovereignty right like so essentially saying all this within my borders like i control it completely but then as we know like there are some issues that are affected that are civil liberties and and like like freedom of speech right and having an open internet as as it has been so far the united states uh uh goal essentially just limits the ability of states to 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 have a say on that right so i think that's uh, that's very important but then we have a Obviously, we have more than just states uh, as players in in the cyber realm, right? And that's where like private companies come in, um, because some of these attacks that we've seen are being like committed against private companies. And uh, and as we were talking at the beginning, like what should be the role of the state to help companies, even if they're foreign companies but based in the U.S. or like with interest in the U.S. Um, how like what's the level of collaboration that we should have with private companies? Yeah, this is hard. And actually, you gave me an easier option, which was, oh, U.S. companies. But most companies, giant Fortune 500 companies, aren't strictly U.S. companies, right? So we ran a war game at the Naval War College a few years ago. We were looking at um, cyber attacks on finance and energy. And one of the big problems we found was that... um, these big multinational corporations don't necessarily have U.S. interests always um, as their primary interest. You know, they have huge consumer bases in other countries. They have um, laws that they're following in other countries. And so um, sometimes that really complicated the the relationship between the United States and these private companies. There was a, a recent op-ed in Wall Street Journal basically arguing that you should be giving these companies, he called them letters of mark, just like just another fancy naval analogy for hackback and that we should give these companies hackback capabilities. 
played this out in war games, it does not go well. I mean, first off, you have to remember these companies don't always have U.S. interests at heart. These are multinational corporations, right? So this becomes very, very complicated for that reason. And then oh, the minute you're giving states like this kind of like a, or these companies the ability to hack back you become very the private sector becomes very entangled um, with governments and states and really opens up the realm for escalation and misperception um, and quite often states and this is something we've seen in war games when we integrate both the private sector with federal government players is that sometimes our private sector players don't really understand the big like international game that is happening <laughs> between the states and so they will take actions that are beneficial for them and for their company but also can be very deleterious for a national security objective um, and that you know this information sharing from this kind of like grand strategic level is also sometimes just as important like hey company A, let me explain to you what's going on in this geopolitical context about why we're not hacking back, right? And so, you know, information sharing becomes just as important um, as the, you know, the government kind of trying to help private sector understand, well, here's our motivations Mm -hmm. behind. Um, So information sharing is really important. I think that can continue and should increase. But there are some capabilities like hackback that I just really do not think should be in the private sector. Yeah, because, yeah. And uh, as you said, this lack of uh, this incomplete information that the private sector has can, you know, just work against them when when they with the limited information they're trying to like accomplish a goal and then you realize that you're probably working against the government or your own interest or your government's interest and uh for the listeners like don't know i took a class with dr snyder we had uh war games in our classes the simulations and i remember that in in one scenario i was on the government side and one of the one other person other student was on the private sector side and just overall because i think it's it's relevant for this uh this uh, explanation um in this scenario the government suffered a cyber attack and we were the government side thinking about you know doing other stuff covered operations like responding in a way and i remember that uh the person who was representing the private sector was asking why are you not doing anything you know like we're suffering and you're not doing anything and on, on the other side we were trying to do um these tactics like but they weren't supposed to be public because then you also let your enemy know that what's going on uh and uh with this little segue i want you to just like tell us um because i know you have a paper that recently or i think it was last year came out on wargaming for international relations research uh and and i want to know because this this was new to me i've i've done simulations for other contexts but never in a war game scenario and i i thought it was fascinating but i want you to just like tell us uh what you found, have you used it, and how other students can, you know, look at this as a research uh, tool in order to, like, uh, get to their findings? Yeah. Oh, thanks for asking that. Um, so I'm fundamentally interested in how human humans behave and respond mm-hmm. to different inputs, um, which is kind of what war games are. We call them war games, right? But it's all about humans interact with each other when placed in hypothetical scenarios. Mm-hmm. I study cyber and I like to study the worst parts of cyber. So I'm particularly interested in how cyber and nuclear interact. Okay. Well, thank God we don't have a lot of real cases studies to to look at and real data to look at. Um, So, you know, in social science, you want variance on your dependent variable. Mm -hmm. If my dependent variable is nuclear,
nuclear use. Dear God, mm. in real life, I do not want variants on my dependent yeah. variable, you know, but yeah. by presenting war games and putting people in scenarios that are rare or have never occurred, you're able to actually create data about scenarios that, that, that haven't existed so far. So that's one of the really great things about using war games. The other thing is that war games are generally about groups of people interacting, which is something kind of more messy than like survey experiments or even lab, some lab experiments. So you create these games so that um, you see how decision making works when people are placed in situations that have um, high pressure and they're having to make cognitive shortcuts, which I think is more accurate to how we make decisions in real life and how individuals are interacting with each other and um, with these cognitive shortcuts and um, so i think that's something that war games can provide and you know war games have had a really really large influence in international security and foreign policy mm-hmm. maybe they weren't like super rigorous um i've uh-huh. worked in war games in the dod and sometimes <laughs> they're more kind of what the sponsor wants to get out of the game yeah so um the great thing about academics is that academics can actually um, insert that rigor. So part mm-hmm. of what our work, I work with Eric Lynn Greenberg and Reed Polly, is trying to introduce kind of basic social science concepts, independent variables, dependent variables, treatments, controls, um, external validity, internal validity, to, to show social scientists how you can design war games and integrate kind of basic social science research methods into war games so that you have a it's much easier to understand how the variable that you care about or that you think matters affects the variable that you care about so um we're really excited and hope that that work kind of extends into um, other fields. I've done a bit of this with the cyber nuclear world. My colleague Eric has looked at drones and unmanned systems, um, but there's a whole lot of work that people can use in the future mm-hmm. um, to try and, and use war games to help understand these really interesting questions that are otherwise really hard to explain with existing data. No, and that's great because I feel like this this way of doing research, it just it's a it's a great way to complement all the other styles, just like interviews by themselves or like just just lit review by itself. Um, and I, you know, personally, just having that experience in, in class, it just it puts you in a mindset that it, it brings this uh, level of you know shortcuts that you sell you know like cognitive shortcuts like you're you think you might act away if you're just sitting in a room with all the time in the world but if you were actually there with limited time and limited knowledge uh you you make different decisions right and i think that's something that it's it's sometimes overlooked when it comes to like decision making and policy making um because that's definitely something that needs to be considered so i was excited to read that i will i will reference it too in, in a little description of this episode too so that people can take a look at it too Oh, thank you. Well, I think this is exactly why we want people to do war games, because when I sit down and take a survey, I tell you what I think I should do in the Mm -hmm. most perfect of circumstances. But the reality when I actually have to make decisions in real life is that I make poor decisions sometimes because um, because I'm faced with uncertainty and I have to make decisions in ways that are not strictly rational. Yeah. And I think that that's that's wonderful for like having a real look into maybe a, a new wave of like IR theory based on on cyber if anyone's interested in that as, and as we said no no more deterrence papers or books <laughs> oh dear god no you guys I mean look I think cyber and signaling 
fascinating. We can even look at like cyber and some coercion and mm-hmm. escalation, but no more cyber and deterrence. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been this has been wonderful, and uh, I will I will definitely let the, the audience know uh, your other works and, and reference them too. So thank you for your time, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much. That was Dr. Jacqueline Schneider, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation on cyber strategy. And I definitely want to recommend you to check out her latest paper. It's called Wargaming for Political Science Research. There's a lot of value in doing this type of research for uh, any papers that you're thinking about writing. Um, but this is uh, has been a wonderful uh, chat, and I hope you enjoy these type of conversations that are coming up in the next episodes. This podcast is sponsored by the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas at Austin. This project is part of the Bromley Fellowship, which provides research training and mentorship opportunities to graduate students of the University of Texas, aiming to involve students in international affairs early in their career to prepare the next generation of leaders to help develop solutions to the most pressing public policy challenges. I am Jaime Cabrera, and thank you for getting into the tech of it.